Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, we're doing something a little bit different today. My conversation with Sam Quinones is really about what drives so many of the societal forces that we hear about, but don't really always understand. Sometimes we need to be reminded how lucky we all are and how a lot of people don't have it as good as we do. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Sam Quinones, journalist, storyteller, and author. His career as a journalist has spanned over 30 years, during which he wrote while living in Mexico for a decade, wrote for the LA Times covering immigration, drug trafficking, neighborhood stories, and gangs, and freelanced for a variety of other publications, including National Geographic, The New York Times, and LA Magazine. He's written four highly acclaimed books, the latest of which is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. His full catalog of books is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he is coming to us from Nashville, Tennessee. Sam, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Reed. So, Sam, as I mentioned right before we started recording, I first heard about your work from a friend of mine, a guy named Bill Burton. We were doing a project years ago, and he said, if you haven't read this book, you really don't understand what's going on with the opioid crisis in this country. And I was born in a small town in Ohio, Sam, uh, Marietta, which is right across the river from Parkersburg, West Virginia, one of those towns, you know, where they give out naloxone over the counter. And so absolutely fascinated by that book and really just blown away by the depth and breadth, not only of the reporting, but also of the story itself. And after I found The Least of Us just a few weeks ago, I read it too. And, and, you know, in the intro, I called you a storyteller. And I think that that is one thing that you do as well as anybody else, especially in the nonfiction realm, is that you're able to weave together these stories of incredible heartbreak, incredible redemption, while also providing a very user-friendly description of <laughs> neurobiology that is so key to so many of these drugs. Now, obviously, there's a through line here, and it, it, I know that all of this stuff, going back to Dreamland and now The Least of Us, which is there's this pipeline that sort of comes out of northwest Mexico into the United States. It started in Appalachia in the you know sort of rust belt, as we would call it, but has really spread. But what got you interested in Dreamland and the opioid epidemic? But then tell us about the through line from opioids to fentanyl to meth. I uh, began all this because I had just moved from Mexico, where I spent 10 years, as you said, to Los Angeles, my home area, worked for the LA Times. And during that time, the drug war in Mexico kicked off. And I was put on a team of reporters to write about what was going on down in Mexico, but also in my case, what happened with drugs when they crossed the border, how do they get the rest of the country. And in part of that, I realized we we're going through in a huge increase in heroin use which I could not explain because I thought heroin was a drug of the 1970s. And we learned that who would go back to heroin? I mean, I just couldn't explain that. Began to write 
about that, found the village in the little state of Nayarit, Mexico, where everybody comes here to sell heroin-like pizza, essentially, a, a delivery system for retail amounts of black tar heroin, and began to write about that and was fascinated by that, went down to the village for the annual fiesta that they have every year and all that stuff. And then along the way, began to realize that the reason these guys had a booming new business nationwide, really, of heroin was because of this other story that I had no awareness of because I'd live in Mexico when all this is going on. And that is the opioid revolution in American medicine. Doctors can now prescribe narcotic painkillers for all manner of things with almost unending refills and on and on. And that got me into this idea that this was going on nationwide. Heroin traffickers were merely following the pills. And as that went on, I decided this had to be a book. And so I was able to write the book that became, as you say, Dreamland. This book behind me was my first book on the topic. And then as I was moving through that, I began to realize, or as the book came out, began to realize that the story itself was changing. And now we were dealing with increasing, staggering quantities of highly potent synthetic drugs, no plants involved in these drugs, just chemicals only. And that, to me, opened up a whole other story. And sure enough, by the time I published that book, The Least of Us, these drugs were nationwide, in much the same way as the narcotic painkillers had become. I believe, though, to answer the larger question that you have, that the through line through all this is simply our own isolation, our own destruction of community that we have engaged in as a culture, I think, for at least 40 plus years. And turning our backs on ways that we come together, destroying something, not funding certain things. There's been almost like a conscious attempt to isolate ourselves. And that is, I believe, the root of what we're seeing, that these drugs, these opioids of various kinds, now fentanyl, of course, are simply symptoms of that deeper problem, deeper anxiety coming from being alone and shredding that which brought us together. I want to get to that because I could spend three days talking to you just about that piece of it. But I do want to talk a little bit about the meteorological and geographical aspect of drugs at the old day. I'm going to call it the old day, Sam, which is for cocaine, you needed the coca plant. And there was, I assume, a growing season in Colombia. For marijuana, you needed earth, right? You needed land, you needed sun, you needed rain. And for heroin or any, you know, poppy derived narcotic, you needed poppy plants. You needed fields of them, whether or not it's in Northwest Mexico or Afghanistan or wherever the case might be. But with the drugs that you describe in this book, to your point, it's all in a lab. There's no growing season. And as you talked about it, the one thing that I was surprised and shocked about, and I guess this is the way that such a well-funded operation or well-funded operations can operate, which is these guys are going through old medical texts, old chemistry texts, to figure out exactly what molecules they can pull off or put back on to make different derivations of this stuff. What you're talking about here is really the fundamental change that we have seen in this country derived really from the changes, the evolution down in Mexico, the trafficking world. The trafficking world down there has been gradually figuring out really since the 90s with methamphetamine, which they industrialized in those years, that it's far better, far more profitable, far less risky to make your own drugs from chemicals than it is to grow them. Because as you say, there are certain growing seasons you can't 
produce plant-based drugs in other times of the year. You need water. You need large groups of farmers. You know, you're doing it in open air most of the time, so you're like uh, vulnerable to helicopters and so on. There's all kinds of reasons from a trafficking point of view why it would be better to make your own drugs in a lab. Now what matters is not land. What matters is access to shipping ports. And that also was key in the story that we're seeing now across the United States because the traffickers there have access, have certain amounts of control of the key shipping ports on the western coast of Mexico, but also Mexico City Airport. And this control allows them to import what I can only describe as, you know, simply catastrophic quantities of ingredients to then be able to make the drugs that are now flowing into the country with such enormous potency and quantities, that being fentanyl and methamphetamine. So what we're seeing here is a dramatic change. Fentanyl has really only been the last few years. I would say methamphetamine goes back maybe eight or 10. But whatever the case, you are seeing a dramatic shift away from plant-based drugs. And because it means so much more in terms of lower risk and higher profit to the trafficking world, I'm not sure anybody's going to be. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple switching anytime soon. This is all happening because of changes in the trafficking world. And as you say, they employ chemists. A lot of traffickers wouldn't know what to look for, but they employ chemists who do know how to make their way navigate the chemical literature, which is vast and includes all kinds of drugs that have been invented by drug companies, but never marketed for the public because for one reason or another, just weren't economically viable. Well, those drugs are all out there. And a large number of fentanyl derivatives, fentanyl analogs, as they're called, were among those. There's no way that they could be marketed to the public, but you can use them, and they were being used for a long time. So I want to talk about methamphetamine. I'll, I'll use its shorthand, meth, because I remember that there came a point, you know, one day when you couldn't buy Sudafed over the counter. I and mean, you could buy it over the counter, but you had to go to the pharmacy, right? You actually had to go to the pharmacist, and you had to show your driver's license. And the reason you had to do that was because Sudafed or ephedrine is, as I understand it, one oxygen molecule away from methamphetamine. So if you could figure out how to burn off that molecule, voila, right? So the idea here is like, because all these guys, like you talk about the biker gangs in California, right? The shake and bake method, which is, you know, maybe that's how Walter White got his start in Breaking Bad. But the idea is these guys are all cooking this stuff a little batch at a time. Maybe it's economically viable because they're doing it, but it's really not efficient. But now you talk about, and please describe what's called this P2P method. And if you would, please, for our listeners, describe the chemicals that are used to make this stuff. Because if you understood what went into it, and I understand that once folks get hooked on this stuff, it's a mess, and we'll get to that, the stuff that goes into it would kill you all by itself. And this is when the trafficking world first in Mexico began to understand that it was better to make in a lab your own drugs rather than grow them. And that started with the ephedrine method of making methamphetamine, which as you say, is very easy. And they were diverting a lot of ephedrine that was coming into the pharmaceutical industry in Mexico, which is very large. And they would take part of that, they would divert it, they would buy it, they would 
smuggle it or whatever, get it away. So they industrialized the production of, of, of ephedrine-made methamphetamine, and they began smuggling it, but they can never get their hands on enough ephedrine meth to cover more than just certain parts of the Western United States. So you began to see, in fact, these shake-and-bake, small-time cooks of whom you know, Walter White would be like the king. Most of these folks are not at all the chemists that Walter White was in Breaking Bad, my goodness. Um, but that was kind of how it was made, and it was very inefficient. And as time went on, they learned that they could get ephedrine from these pills and so on. That began to change in 2008 when the Mexican government cracked down on the amount of ephedrine that was imported into Mexico, really reducing that amount. And they had to find, and the trafficking world had to find another way of making methamphetamine. There is another way, old way, it's, it was new to them, but it involved a chemical known as phenyl-2-propanone as the key ingredient, P2P, just known as P2P. And P2P really is a smelly way of making methamphetamine. There's a lot of problems with it. It does have one benefit to the trafficking world. And that is that you can make P2P, unlike ephedrine, you can make P2P many different ways. You can make it with all kinds of different chemical combinations. Many of these chemicals are legal, cheap, widely available, used in many, many industries and very highly toxic, you know, benzene, acetone, stuff like that. Hydrochloric acid. I mean, Sam, this is really nasty stuff. It is. And it's used in racing fuel, photography, tanning. You can imagine the kind of chemicals. The benefit to the trafficking world is that the government cannot crack down on these chemicals because that would then hinder or, or destroy legitimate industries on which depend on these things. So for the trafficking world, it was a boon because now they figure out this new way and there's chemists teach them how to do it. There's schools almost in the, in the hills on how to do this. People begin to learn. There's a vast knowledge now of how to do this down in, in Mexico. And it's just different chemical combinations, most of which are coming in large amounts. Once they figure out this chemical can make, this combination can make P2P. So can this one, there's dozens of ways of making P2P. What that means is the limitations that they had with ephedrine are off. Pretty soon they can make quantities of this stuff that boggle the mind. And so 2009, eight and nine, you begin to see this change. Really the learning curve though, takes them until about 2011, 12, 13, when you really begin to see the supplies conquer the country and get rid of all of those shake and bake, those small time meth cooks. They don't exist really. And they've been outcompeted completely by this very, very cheap methamphetamine, very prevalent. It's now covered the country so much so that also, it's dropped the price. That's the amazing thing. Covered the country with methamphetamine and dropped the price by like 90%. And so you go everywhere in the United States now, there is some quantity of sustained quantity of methamphetamine coming out of Mexico. And that is kind of part of the P2P stories. It's just simply everywhere. And the prices are just so low. It's just so prevalent now. And also there is the other effect that methamphetamine has, nor will they cut it, meaning dilute it. On the street, when you dilute a drug, it's a way of extending its life, making more profit because you have trouble finding it because its supply is somewhat scarce or entirely scarce, or because you are trying to just simply make more profit. It's usually both. But when there's a wide amount, unrelenting supplies of one drug, people don't cut it. Why? Why would they cut it? They can get it all they want. There's no question of scarcity. But secondly, 
they know that if they cut it, people will go to another dealer who's not cutting it. It's a competitive thing. So what you're seeing is the enormous potency with which it crosses the country in this methamphetamine is now all across the country. It's not really being cut to any great degree the way the way other drugs and methamphetamine many, many years ago would be cut. And that, it seems to me now, is a main reason for the other story that accompanies methamphetamine out of Mexico now that's as it covers the country. And that is a very rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, mental illness, very quickly homelessness, uh, you're seeing this all across the country. I mean, really no place in the country are you not seeing that I've spoken to and I've spoken to many people as I was writing the book. And since then, it's a remarkable transformation of this drug. I thought initially it might have something to do when I was writing the book that it might have something to do with these toxic chemicals. I think more and more as this now is being studied because it was not being studied at all, was not really recognized by a lot of people until I wrote the book. People are trying to figure it out. And I think a lot of people are siding with the idea that maybe it's simply the extraordinarily relentless potency that company accompanies this drug. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. That is creating this problem. Because the book is maybe not every page, but almost every other page. To your point about the old meth, right, was the party drug. You felt good. You know, there's one woman who said, you know, I worked all day. I partied all night. I cleaned houses all day. I went and did this. And then you mention it, then something, boom, changes. And it affects all of these neural pathways, right, whether or not it's pleasure whether or not it's survival, right? Because it turns off the pieces of your brain that say, wait, 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 this is a really bad idea. You shouldn't do these things. But you talked about the homelessness thing, which I want to spend a few minutes on because you mentioned you're from Los Angeles. And I recall being in LA, I don't know when it was, but it was not that long ago. And, you know, out in Westwood, you know, near UCLA, near the Veterans Cemetery there, and up along, you know, the western edge of the Veterans Cemetery is just tense as far as the eye can see. Yeah, and and I think that that's one of the first places, Los Angeles, and including especially at Skid Row. Right. South of downtown, right? Yeah, right there. Skid Row is some of the first places where this meth was felt. And it's a remarkable thing. Skid Row for 30 years has been a place of crack sales. Crack was king on Skid Row, without a doubt. And meth by 2014 has essentially dethroned crack cocaine in Skid Row. And now it's a meth area and it's very serious schizophrenia or symptoms, I should say, of schizophrenia, because it's kind of meth-induced psychosis, meth-induced schizophrenia. It's not organic schizophrenia, which is another thing altogether and treated a very different way. And now you're seeing as the homeless population has exploded, I think in part, not entirely, but certainly in part due to methamphetamine, you are seeing the same exposures, the same behaviors and the same situation replicated in many parts of Los Angeles. You know, over in Hollywood, you see it South Central on the overpasses. You definitely see it there. You see it along the 110 as it gets into Pasadena. I mean, you see it everywhere and over by the VA too. Now I haven't been over there for a while, but last time I was there, Venice, you know, on Venice, they had a boardwalk there, gorgeous boardwalk, just crammed with tents, which they called both the residents of that tent encampment as well as the locals called it Methlehem. 
So it's part of, I believe, a, a significant part. How large? It's very hard to tell. It's impossible to tell. But a significant part of the homelessness that we are seeing, the tent encampments, the mental illness that we are seeing in many parts of the country, not just Southern California, not just even the West Coast, where you can see examples of the San Francisco, Portland, et cetera, it's at Sacramento. You also see in this in small towns. And part of my, the least of us talks about the town of Clarksburg, West Virginia, where they had no homelessness until this meth arrived. And then pretty soon, within a year, the whole town is like besieged by wandering lost souls, particularly in downtown Clarksburg. Yeah. And it ravages the brain. As you noted, it, it induces this psychosis, which you noted a couple of times within the book that some of these folks would go and show up at a psychiatric ward and they'd be diagnosed with schizophrenia. They'd be put in there. They start to detoxify their brain. But suddenly, like the cheetahs disappear. <laughs> right. And the doctors are like, what? Wait, 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 wait. Schizophrenia is like it's a diagnosed condition that, you know, I think it onsets in, you know, teenage kids. Right. Mostly men, mostly boys. Yeah. You're seeing that that's a big issue. You see that, hear this all the time when you talk to ER medical personnel, doctors and nurses, paramedics too, where they're not quite sure what is the issue here. Is it organic schizophrenia or is it meth induced? And increasingly now it's meth induced. You're seeing ERs in some parts of the country really change how they do business, fortify their rooms sometimes because the people are so violent, unpredictable, erratic, and so on. And a lot of this is simply due to methamphetamine, making it very easy for people to become homeless because nobody can live with somebody like this. You can't pay your rent. You can't live according to a schedule and rules when like this. And also, once you're on the street, it makes it very, very difficult to get off. Even if the reason you're homeless is very different, doesn't have anything to do with methamphetamine, it's so prevalent, so potent that once you begin to use it, it keeps people homeless as well. Let me ask you this. I mean, there's the damage it's doing to the brain, but also to the body. You know, everybody's skinny, everybody's gaunt. What is it with the teeth? Why is it so hard on the teeth? I think it has to do with the chemicals involved, but yeah, normally methamphetamine does that, like sugar does it too. You know, it's a corrosive thing. And this methamphetamine, perhaps because of its potency, seems to just almost melt teeth at times. And of course, then it's also the symptoms of all this do not immediately go away once you stop using. I spoke with many people who have talked about this, both addicts in recovery as well as uh, counselors and ER folks and so on. But one guy I remember very poignantly, he said when he was using meth and driving, he would feel these hands come out of the seat, grab at him, and he put cushions over the seat so that these hands couldn't get to him. And then he stopped using, and it was six months, six months before he stopped feeling those hands. They don't stop. The symptoms don't seem to stop immediately, and it definitely affects the memory. It affects empathy. People have a very hard time feeling anything, a flat effect, lack of memory, lack of understanding why you're even in a situation. What happened to the last week? I talked to one guy who said, I began using this stuff, and there's a week that I can't account for anymore. I just don't know what happened. And so then, you know, the societal impact, again, whether or not it's mass homelessness or people who've been using long enough, and it, I guess it doesn't take very long to get hooked on this stuff to a, an incredibly destructive degree, then the societal effect is the initial response is like, just don't look at it, ignore it. I don't want these people in my downtown, these tent cities. you know. So then you start to come up, Sam, as you described, especially in a place like LA, which I don't want to center on too much, but again, it's your hometown and there's enough of it there that's visible. 
that, you know, people don't want to really understand the root causes of these things either, which is it's the cost of housing. It's the economy. But, you know, like there's 3% unemployment, right? <laughs> so like joblessness is one thing, but like we're not in the Great Depression here, Sam, right? We're not in, you know, shanty towns in the 1920s or early 1930s were because people couldn't pay their rent. This is a whole different deal. I believe it is, in fact, and I think that's part of the problem that we have not been able to adjust our thinking to the new time of synthetic drugs, the new time of fentanyl and methamphetamine, which changed everything. You can't really think about drugs, drug addiction, drug overdose, drug treatment, on and on, drug smuggling in the same way now. And one of the problems I think we are facing is that people are still looking at homelessness as if it has one cause. It's true that by definition, a homeless person is a person who doesn't have a house, but why and what the reasons are and what keeps people homeless and what's going on on the street is a question that needs to be developed and understood far more broadly and freely than it is allowed to. In many places, you are finding a certain kind of almost dogmatic, almost inquisitorial approach that no one can possibly mention drug addiction when it comes to the causes of homelessness, because that would somehow be stigmatizing the homeless. I think quite the contrary. It's actually attempting to understand some real life reasons and therefore fashion real life solutions. But that is absolutely the problem. I would say too that this meth is a problem in areas that, that are far away from the big city. As I said, Clarksburg, you know, all these places you're finding people go homeless, not because of the high cost of housing, but because this methamphetamine, you know, I was speaking with a woman in Bernalillo, New Mexico. It's a rural town in central New Mexico. And she was saying, you know, all the people that I know that are homeless now have houses. Those houses are paid for by their parents or grandparents. That's been in the family for a long time. They just can't hold it together enough to keep even a house that they already own. Right. They can't keep the lights on. They can't turn the water on. Right. None of that seems to be capable. There's no such thing as a functioning meth addict with ephedrine meth, because I believe it was largely cut because there was not enough of it to go around. So people would cut it fairly aggressively. It was a different kind of drug. You could function on it. And I know people who, who functioned for a lot of years on that kind of methamphetamine, but this does not seem by and large to allow for that. So let's talk about the other killer demon in your book, which is fentanyl. And aside from having read your first book, Fentanyl is a drug that is not only incredibly lethal when taken, I guess, at any point, but also has become rather politicized as well. But just before I even get to that, Sam, I mean, I had to get an endoscopy, I don't know, five or six months ago. And when you come out of it, you first of all, it's fentanyl and propofol. So when you come out of it, Sam, you feel like a million dollars. Right? You're like, wow. I looked at the, you know, they give you the bill or the chart or whatever. It was 0.125 micrograms. Of fentanyl. That's it. Point one, two, I, which is, I don't know if that's a grain of sand, a grain of salt, but it's not very much to get you there, right? To knock you out for 45 minutes or whatever. So tell us a little bit about the fentanyl and the meth, if they're in parallel, if they're in sequence. So tell us how we got now to fentanyl. Yeah, as you say, very important to note, and I always like to note this because I've been giving fentanyl myself an operation, is a magnificent drug, surgical drug. When used surgically as anesthesia, it revolutionized surgery. We can do all kinds of surgery now that were not possible before when it was just morphine. It's a magnificent, magnificent drug. One of the things that keeps it so, why it's such a workout horse as an anesthetic is it takes you in and out very quickly. You don't spend hours doped up like on morphine. 
That's also why the trafficking world views it so positively as such a profit center, because it takes people in and very quickly out. So once you're addicted to it, you have to use numerous times through the day, and it depends on your tolerance how many times that is, but it's usually far more than you'd ever use of heroin because your tolerance to heroin is here. The fentanyl, it goes like here. That's why we don't really have much heroin on the streets of America anymore. We're really in an amazing moment. Baltimore, a town known for its heroin since the 60s, never really left the heroin period, now doesn't have much heroin at all. It's like mostly 90% fentanyl now. It's a remarkable transformation with this stuff. Again, obeying all the profit and risk benefits to the trafficking world, it's just a, a wonderful revelation to the trafficking world. Wow, there's something called, they called it initially synthetic heroin while it's fentanyl. Fentanyl allows for you to create addicts. It's really about creating demand with supply. It's not the other way around. Supply side economics finally come into play. Oh, absolutely. And of course, with opioids, this is part of the story always. It was a part of the story. The Sacklers knew this was true. Heroin traffickers for a long time have known this was true. And now people who sell fentanyl are kind of figuring this out. Yeah. And I remember having a procedure just on the opioid front years ago where the doctors prescribed me 10 Oxycontin or whatever, right? And this was a one day recovery. And I go to the pharmacy and I say, can I have one? And he goes, you want one? I said, I want one. He's like, well, yeah, but I mean, like it says like 10, I can give you a hundred. I'm like, I don't want a hundred. I want one. And the guy couldn't figure it out. I mean, I think that this is part of that story though. See, you're talking about fentanyl, the end, the latest wrinkle in all this, but really it starts with in my book, Dreamland, which is all about this, with this attitude that we can prescribe prescription opioid painkillers derived from the opium poppy without any negative side of no addictive propensity among people who are in pain, you will not find people getting addicted. And that's true for 100% of the human population. Of course, that was not true, but it created all kinds of problems and it created attitudes in the doctors like, well, let's just prescribe them 60 Vicodin instead of two. Why? Because they're not addicted. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Well, that attitude created, again, supply created demand. We had a huge increase just escalating from the mid-90s into the next decade or so. It was just scary how much of these pills were then visited on the, on the American population. And from that, some people were helped. There is no doubt about that. A lot of people, though, were not. And a lot of people ended up addicted and dying. And we're still dealing with the consequences. But again, with opioids, it's very easy for supply to create demand because they are so addictive particularly if you're providing enormously potent pills, drugs, whatever, and in enormous supplies. And these pills happen to be illegal. So you create enormous demand that way. The fentanyl story is simply a much higher order of addiction, but the story is not that different. It's simply enormous supplies. And the Sacklers, as you note in both books, were driven by the idea that First of all, they ran the company from the board of directors as family members, as you note, but were demanding more and more sales because, Sam, they weren't producing anything else. There was no R&D, and they were literally just taking money straight out of the company to put in their own pockets. Therefore, not unlike maybe a guy south of the border, they said, we need to sell more of this stuff. We need to put more of this stuff on the street so that we can make more money. And no amount of money will be enough. I mean, they behaved like addicts. If you read the amazing criminal complaint 
drawn up by the Massachusetts Attorney General, which you can see online. If you read the whole thing, 277 pages, you get a very strong feeling like there is no amount of money that would be enough for this family. Even when the 2010, when they made, when Purdue funneled them $889 million from the sale of Oxycontin in one, in one year, they were still looking for ways to make more. I mean, they're behaving, in my view, very much like drug addicts behave, which no amount of the dope will be enough. Well, in this case, no amount of the money will be enough. But they understood if you get doctors prescribing even the smallest amount of Oxycontin, and you keep pushing them, you keep visiting, and that supply provided to a patient will then develop into, oh, five milligrams? No, it's pretty soon it's 20, maybe then it's 40. Within a year or two, that person's up on 80, maybe 160. The trafficking world understands these facts, but the Sacklers did too, and it's very hard to miss this if your only product is an opioid. Right, and the reps were out there doing their part, right, just like anybody might on a corner because the benefits to them too like again i guess that's part of it too sam is that like if you're a rep and and i'm sure that the vast majority of medical reps are out there trying to do their job and for the right reason but in this particular instance if your job is tied to getting your doctor to prescribe as many of these things as you can so you can go to antigua right for the sales deal or whatever right but look you don't live in Clarksburg, West Virginia. You might not live anywhere near it. And those pills arrive at the pharmacy, they go out the door, they are ingested, and all of the downstream destruction that occurs, you're long gone by the time any of that happens. This is a very important point you're mentioning right here. And this gets to the fact, another example of the millions we could cite of the destruction of community. And that is that pharmaceutical salesmen, they mostly were, almost all were men, in the 70s and 80s into the 90s were part of the community. They were retired pharmacists, retired doctors. Everybody knew them. You would see them at church. You'd see them at Friday night football games. You'd see them at the restaurants downtown, maybe city council meeting. They had a vested interest in being legitimate brokers of information. Right, because they had a, a level of social capital that they wanted to retain. And if they were getting their doctor's buddies and their patients hopped up on dope, not likely to last very long. That's exactly right. And so they needed to be legitimate purveyors of information and not about the hard sell. They knew what they were talking about. They were not great salesmen, but they knew what they were talking because they had a lot of history and they knew the community. Then in the mid-90s, you saw another revolution, frankly, in sales force in the pharmaceutical industry in which all those old guys kind of are shown the door. They've gradually retired or fired or whatever. And in their place come people straight out of college, no background in pharmacy, no background in medicine. They don't know what they're selling, but they do know what to sell. They're from marketing programs and so on. And they are not, it's a very important point you bring up. They are not part of the community. Again, it's like you're taking these people, you're plopping them down in a town. You're saying in nine months, we'll switch you to another territory if you do well here, that kind of thing. A territory or a region, right? A region, whatever. You don't go to the church. You don't go to the football games. You don't, you're not seen at the local restaurants. And what's more, at that same time, they are developing hard sale methods. A lot of them developed first by Purdue Pharma, by the way in how to convince a doctor that he must prescribe these pills escalating doses. So it's, again, part of that larger theme that I think is so important. When you lose those pharmacists and those former doctors, you get a new breed who don't care anything about the community. They don't care anything about the information they're purveying. They don't even know whether it's true or not because they have no background in it. 
Well, and then you also note that the insurance companies, because prescribing a pill is so cheap, start to say, this is what we're going to cover. We're not going to cover other pain-related things. We're going to cover this because it's cheap and it's plentiful. And we think because it's cheap and plentiful, ergo, it must be good and must be solving the problem. And that's non-addictive, supposedly. That was the whole whole idea. Which is still, Sam, amazing to me that like how that ever got through the deal. Oh, I couldn't believe it myself. I mean, a lot of these doctors were very reluctant because they'd grown up, they'd gone to medical school when you were taught, you never use these pills except for end-of-life care. And when you do use them, you need, you know, three signatures of higher-ups and all this kind of, nobody's taking bottles of this stuff home, for goodness sake, ever, you know. But now there's this new world and they need to be conditioned, re-educated, in a sense. A lot of them don't go along with it and have to be pushed. Many others, though, embrace the whole idea. And a lot of kids coming up in medical school learn that the new way of treating pain is just simply with massive doses of opioid painkillers. How does a company like Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers market something as non-addictive, right? This is not like you take this vitamin C thing three times a day and, and then there's the big thing like not have tested, not that, 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 that at the bottom, right? I mean, how do you market basically heroin as non-addictive? It's a great question. And at the time, there was an enormous focus on pain and how we are managing pain badly, which was true. It was not, the, not incorrect. At the same time, you get certain pain specialists, doctors who are specializing in the treatment of pain, coming to the conclusion that we must eradicate pain in America. We're doing such a bad job. And we have the tool. And that tool we are not using because we're afraid to use it. And they begin to make the argument that this tool, opioid painkillers, narcotic painkillers, can be used without any consequences, any negative consequences for those people who are in pain, which is true for a lot of people and not true for a lot of people. But the problem is we don't differentiate. We don't see, hey, what's your background? You know, any, any problems at home? You've ever, you know, you've been to jail, any of these kinds of things. And then they also come to understand it doesn't matter what your genetic disposition is for addiction. If you use opioid painkillers for a certain length of time, usually 90, 100 days right in there, it doesn't matter what your genetic disposition is, you will probably, there's a very high likelihood you'll get addicted. And you get this groundswell of all these institutions, the VA, JCO, which governs uh, accredited hospitals, all these institutions getting on board with these ideas, medical schools getting on board. And in time, I've talked to people who said, I would never understood how they could make these claims. And yet soon enough, everybody was making the claim. And it was as if you couldn't really work anymore if you didn't buy into it. So for those of you listening, we're going to leave it there today. This concludes the first part of my conversation with Sam Quinones. Until next time, you can follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Quinones 7 As always, you can follow me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for our conclusion with Sam Quinones. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. 
And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.